Welcome to another TeachingAmericanHistory.org podcast. TAH.org is the leading online resource for documents, resources, and programs related to American history, government, and civics for teachers, students, and citizens. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is John Moser. I am professor of history and chair of the Master of Arts in American History and Government program here at Ashland University. Welcome to our third season of Documents in Detail, TeachingAmericanHistory.org's webinar series. In each episode, we'll do a deep dive into a single document discussing the historical, literary, and rhetorical aspects of said document while also analyzing its impact on American history, people, and thought. TeachingAmericanHistory.org is a project of the Ashbrook Center, a nonpartisan nonprofit organization based at Ashland University. We provide a variety of programs and resources for teachers of American history, government, and civics, all based on primary documents. In the next week, you will receive an email with a link to request a certificate of participation as well as a link to the archived video and audio from today's program. The documents we will be discussing tonight, as is the case with all of our webinars, are drawn from the Ashbrook Center's voluminous document database available for your use at TAH.org. You can participate in the discussion by typing your questions into the chat window at the bottom of your screen at any time, and we will do our best to answer them expeditiously. The subject of today's program is James Madison's Memorial and Remonstrance Against Religious Assessments. To help discuss it this evening are Dr. David Tucker, Senior Fellow at the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University and Director of Faculty for its teacher programs, and Dr. Sarah Morgan-Smith, Ashbrook Center Fellow, General Editor of Ashbrook's Core Documents Collections, and Co-Director of the Center's Religion in American History and Politics Project. Welcome to both of you. I'm delighted you could be with us. So, just to start us off, uh, would each of you like to say a few words about why this document is important? Why include this in the relative handful of documents that we will be emphasizing over the course of this academic year? Do you want to go first, sir? Um, sure, I can go first. So I think that Madison's remonstrance is significant um, on two dimensions. One is the, just the fact that Madison is the author and he's such a significant player in shaping um, particularly the legal development of uh, the new nation, uh, you know, the author of the constitution or the father of the constitution. Um, but more significantly, I think, is his role in shaping the Bill of Rights. And of course, the text of the First Amendment, which becomes critical to the American understanding of religious liberty. And so knowing what Madison will go on to do in the First Amendment, um, I think makes the remonstrance very significant because it helps us understand some of where he's coming from and um, and maybe what he had in mind uh, in in terms of framing that document. Um, so that's that's one element, it's just that Madison is the author. And then the other is that uh, it shows us so clearly that religious liberty has um, benefits for both religion and for civil society. Okay, so uh, in a way we're getting the backstory to the First Amendment of the Bill of Rights here, very interesting. David Tucker. <laughs> yeah, I would just add that in the Everson case, one of the very first times the Supreme Court fully applied the First Amendment uh, to to the states, it's the memorial and remonstrance is one of the key documents that guided the justices, and it continues to be cited in that in that way. So, in I believe actually in the Hobby Lobby case, uh, one a recent case, uh, even though it wasn't fought directly on First Amendment grounds. Uh, both justices, uh, in the, the dissent and, and the majority opinion, referred to the memorial and remonstrance or to Madison's writings. So it's 
it's been very influential in court decisions. Okay. So could you give us a little bit of context for this, uh, for this document? What was going on? Uh, tell us a little about the, the bill that Madison is responding, is responding to here. David, do you want to start? Sure. Um, there was a, well, the, there, uh, you know, the background for this, of course, is that there was a, uh, an established church in Virginia, in the Episcopalian Church of the Revolution. And then the question became, uh, what do we do with this established church? And the, uh, as Madison, uh, Madison references the Virginia Declaration of Rights, which called for religious liberty. And it seemed to him and to some others that this implied um, no establishment, whereas there were some others, Patrick Henry, um, he was prominent obviously in the revolution and, and yet was devoted to the Anglican church and then to the Episcopal church. So Henry was one of the people who wanted to provide state support for the church. So I don't know if you want to add, and, and so uh, a, a proposal for state support had um, come to the Virginia Assembly and Madison and those who opposed it, um, I guess you could say maneuvered uh, legislatively to prevent a vote and to, to give time as he, ref as Madison refers to in the, in the remonstrance, to give time to kind of collect the opinion of the Virginia people uh, about this proposal. And it was in that time that Madison wrote and circulated the memorial and remonstrance and other people circulated petitions as well. And those eventually ended up back with the assembly and turned the, turned the assembly against the, uh, against the notion of supporting the, uh, the Episcopalian church. Okay, Sarah. Yeah, the only thing I would add to what David said is that, um, you know, Henry, at some point in this process, to try and um, either sideline Madison or get around some of those critiques, opens it up to allow people to support whatever church, uh, you know, recognized church, but whatever church um, that they wanted to, uh, not just the Anglican church. And so I think what makes the remonstrance really interesting is that it's, um, its objection is philosophical, right? It's not just to the idea of an established church. It's, it's the idea of a state collecting taxes and using them for religious purposes. Um, and so it kind of broadens that um, discussion up in a way that we don't see in some of the other colonies and then states. Yeah, my, my, my understanding, as you say, is that is that the, the bill that Patrick Henry proposed would have had tax money taken from everyone, but then that would be used to fund Christian teaching of whatever sect the taxpayer uh, the taxpayer preferred. Uh, and that that is, I'm sure, what uh, what Madison has in mind when, oh, Gosh, I'm not going to be able to find it right now. But he said, "Look, this is this this sounds like it's uh, this sounds like it's even-handed among sects, but really it's it's promoting the Christian religion at the expense of others. And if we allow this principle, why bit why which by which Christianity can be supported uh, at public expense, but no other faiths can, then it's only a matter of time before we start picking and choosing among among sects." Um, I'm I'm interested in the the very first line of this, not to the Honorable General Assembly, but we the subscribers, why use that term? Either of you, feel free to jump in. Don't be so polite. <laughs> well, I don't attach any significance to it other than, uh, you know, kind of a literal, um, we, we who have signed our names below. Okay, okay. All right. All right. Good. Uh, that 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 makes uh, that makes sense. I mean, I, I think it is important. I, I it's interesting in how this process worked in the sense that there were a number of petitions circulated, and, and people really, you know, you did sign your name, and there your 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 scribble was carried to uh, to the assembly. So it, it's quite literally a kind of process of collecting signatures and yeah. 
it ha it hadn't uh, it hadn't occurred to me that subscribers literally means the undersigned. Yeah. Uh, here's a question uh, we have from Jeremy. How fundamental do you think this belief of religious liberty was to Madison the man? Was it more of an Enlightenment political idea or a reflection of his own personal beliefs? Hmm. Uh, so this is a controversial question. Um, <laughs> I mean, different Madison scholars fall out differently on this. You know, there are people who are deeply committed to the idea that Madison was... Um, you know, personally agnostic, bordering on atheistic, and so, uh, you know, want him to be this idealized Enlightenment thinker who is using religious liberty as a cover for trying to get religion out of the public square. Um, I actually happen to think that's wrong. I think that Madison genuinely believed that um, there were valuable elements in religion that could best be appreciated and could best do their public good if they were completely divorced from the state. And so I think that he believes religious liberty is an essential principle um, because it means that religions don't have an incentive to become corrupt and, and to meddle in troublesome ways, and so because they don't have that incentive, then they're kind of free to develop those virtuous elements um, that he thinks they do have. Okay. I, I think that uh, I, I tend to agree with Sarah uh, without claiming really to understand, of course, you know, Madison's most private thoughts about his relationship to God, but it's clear that I think that there was a difference between Madison and Jefferson on this point. Jefferson was more reluctant than Madison to acknowledge that religion could do good or had a, had any kind of positive political effect. And I think when you when you read Jefferson, they were so close and supported one another in so many ways. Uh, I think that you do see there's a difference there. As a practical matter, they both, for the reasons Sarah gave, they they both wanted to keep religion out of political life. But I think they had slightly different uh, motivations, personal motivations for that with regard to their own religious opinions. What do you know about the substance of, of uh, Madison's religious beliefs? Was Could he be characterized like Jefferson as a deist? So there's a really good book um, and it's, it's a very slim little volume. And I think it might just be James Madison and Religion is the title of it um, by uh, a scholar whose name I'm not remembering right now, which I apologize uh, to the unnamed scholar for forgetting them. Uh, but the book is really good and uh, makes the case that Madison, although raised um, you know, in the Anglican establishment in Virginia, when he goes on off to Princeton and studies with John Witherspoon, um, who is a, an ordained Presbyterian minister, becomes sort of more uh, Calvinistic in his understanding of the world. And I think, um, you know, if if we look at even his um, secular writings, you know, the view that he presents of mankind, right, that um, if, if men were angels, no government would be necessary, you know, this sort of, we have to be kind of a little bit cynical, a little bit aware of men's propensity to um, to do bad things to one another. Um, so I think he absorbs the Presbyterian mindset and then um, he, he does go to religious services, but not in a particularly studious or, or careful way. I mean, he's not, he's certainly not like a first gate awakening, uh, even he He does participate in religious community, but not in a way that um, marks him as, you know, part of a religious awakening or anything like that. Sure. I, I think there's some important evidence for Madison's view of this, on this question in, in the document itself, in the first um, paragraph, well, the, the first reason he gives why this bill should not pass He's, he's quoting the Virginia Declaration of Rights, but he says, religion or the duty which we owe to our creator in the manner of discharging it can, can be directed to reason and conviction, not by force or violence, um, 
This is uh, this right is in its nature an unalienable right. It is unalienable because the opinions of men, depending only on the evidence contemplated by their own minds, cannot follow the dictates of other men. And then in the uh, both in the fourth and in the sixth uh, reasons he gives for opposing uh, Henry's bill, again he returns to this to the he uses the phrase evidence. Minds have not yet yielded to the evidence which has convinced us. Um, so I think if, if by deist you mean, and that that's a, can be, I'm not quite, we'd have to define that term, but for Madison, I think it's very important, this emphasis on reason and evidence presented to your mind, creating a conviction, which then becomes the basis of your conscience or your religious understanding is how he understood the process to work. And you can say that's a very enlightened or rationalistic uh, approach to religion. And I think some people would say that, but I do think that's that's Madison's view. At least that's the view articulated in the memorial and remonstrance. What, what sort of evidence do you suppose he might be talking about? <laughs> what, what counts as evidence to convince one of religious belief? It's a good, good question. Good question. So I'll, I'll turn it to Sarah to answer that. <laughs> Thanks so much. Um, and now I was like looking frantically at the text to see, does he give us any examples? Um, I mean, it's interesting in that fourth point that David was just quoting from where he says, um, we, we cannot deny an equal freedom to those whose minds have not yet yielded to the evidence which has convinced us. Um, so without knowing exactly what he would have in mind, to, to me, just the phrasing of that suggests that although there is evidence and it is rational, um, that it's it's evidence that carries with it some kind of authority that the mind just um, has to be in the right state to receive. Steve, right, that it, it's not self-evident in the way the truths of the Declaration are, right? It's not, um, it's not entirely standing on its own, but it has something to do with the receptivity, receptivity of the person who's either convinced or not. Um, and so I think that it's got to be evidence that's more than just here are these set of facts, um, you know, the Bible is is the most what is successful bestseller, you know, whatever. Um, that there that Madison is sort of hinting at a uh, a more spiritual or, or emotional response to evidence than just a rational response. All right, because that that's the section that really screamed deism to me. Because well, any deist would say the evidence that the evidence of the watch tells us that there's a watchmaker, hence the existence of the universe tells us that there's a creator. On the other hand, we don't have evidence for the Immaculate Conception. We don't even have evidence for the Trinity or the, or, or, uh, the, the resurrection of Christ. But okay, be that, be that as it may. Um, Sarah, you mentioned uh, early on that one of the things that's really uh, interesting about this is the emphasis which one doesn't find in Jefferson on the ways in which uh, uh, establishment of religion or state funding for religion actually is bad for religion itself. Uh, could you and David each say a little bit more about that, please? Do you want, do you want me to start, sir? Um, I was say I have actually point 11 um, from the remonstrance in front of me, so I could talk about that. Um, okay. So one of the things that Madison raises here is that the, uh, the problem with establishments is that they create jealousies among uh, different religious groups. And so any support, uh, whether it's to one group or whether it's to, you know, groups that are authorized um, or, you know, all religious, uh, all groups that claim to be Christian, whatever it is, is going to create outsiders who are then going to be um, factious and trying to worm their way into the type of power relationships that the established or recognized religions have. 
Um, and so Madison in point 11 talks about this, um, it will destroy that moderation and harmony which the forbearance of our laws to intermeddle with religion has produced, right? So it's going to cause these religious groups um, not just to disturb the peace of society, but also to disturb their internal peace, right? They're going to become more interested in these power relationships than doing what they're supposed to be doing. Hmm. Okay. And then in, uh, <clears throat> in point six, his argument there in brief is that if you have to support the religion, it suggests to people that it, it can't, there's no, it has no evidence uh, of its worth on its own. So it actually undermines confidence in religion to have state support for it. And then in the seventh point, he says, once you start this state support, then you actually start corrupting the ministers of religion because they start to compete um, for the benefits. And he says, what have been its fruits of this state support? More or less in all places, pride and indolence in the clergy. I mean, the clergy don't have to work hard because they get a state support, so they mumble their sermons and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Ignorance and servility in the laity in both superstition, bigotry, and persecution. Um, you know, that, that uh, portrait may be a little overdrawn, but it is true that students of religion today will, will point to the continuation of state support in Europe uh, as one reason why those churches... Christian churches have not flourished, and the lack of state support in the United States uh, being a reason why Christianity continued to flourish and continues to flourish in the United States because it bred a kind of need to be self-reliant and, if you want to say that, competitive and, uh, and so forth, which kept the spirit alive in the uh, Christian churches in America, which was not necessary in Europe, and, and therefore those churches did uh, lose a kind of vigor that they should have had. Uh, we have another question. Yeah, that's, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, and Madison kind of makes that in, um, his 12th point, too, to talk about the fact that, uh, you know, there's uh, no incentive for evangelism if the church is established, right? If it's going to be supported, regardless of whether it actually appeals to the public, um, then they have no incentive to spread the gospel, which is theoretically the whole point of these different and and indeed elsewhere he says we'll actually lose believers simply because they'll they'll leave the state they'll head to a, they'll head to a different one where there is no established religion certainly uh, certainly that's what uh, what that's what believers in other sects are going to do and Europeans presumably looking across uh, across the Atlantic will say well we might as well stay home or or go anywhere but Virginia if uh, if, if, we're, if we do plan on leaving. Right. Uh, there's another question relevant to what we're talking about. How common were establishments elsewhere in the colonies pre-independence, and how common were they during the first years of the Republic under the Constitution? When did they cease to exist altogether in the United States? Uh, maybe I could, uh, I could make a plug here. If there is a website that Sarah and I have been working on called Religion in American History and Politics, which is connected to the TAH website. And on that uh, religion website, there is a chart which shows how complex, uh, in the, say, from 1776 to 1840, it covers roughly those years, how complex this question was about religion in the states. So the... Um, the last state establishment is in Massachusetts, right? So that's 1833 when it disappears. Is that right, sir? Yeah, that's what I remember. Um, many states in you know 1777, some states did away with their establishment. And there were only, uh, what is it, three states, Sarah? Two colonies, two or three that did not have an establishment? Yeah, so Rhode Island has the sort of least established uh you know, I, I don't think they have any real guidelines. Um, and then Pennsylvania has a relatively uh, uh, loose, you know, believing in the God of the Old and New Testaments. Um, so they allowed, you know, kind of encapsulate Jews in there. Um, and Georgia, I want to say, maybe. Right. Um, right. I think Georgia. So th that question is difficult to answer because there was a lot of... Um, uh, you know, what's the term fluidity? I mean, uh, 
I, I think it's always important to remember that there never had been a place um, that had adopted this principle of religious liberty, uh, certainly not in the way it, it was understood. And so people didn't know quite, it, there isn't a sense in which people were experimenting. So some states prohibited ministers from holding public office. Some states had test oaths, uh, others did not. Uh, there's a lot of difference, variability from state to state. All right. Um, presumably, it was not always the Church of England that, for for example, Massachusetts would have uh, supported the, the Congregationalist sect over uh, over others. What was there any kind of uniformity in, in in the sense of which sects were discriminated against? I think Quakers and, and Mennonists, presumably Mennonites, come up in the, in this in this document. What, what were often the, the, the minority sects that were, that were uh, I don't know if persecuted is, a strong, is, is too strong a word, but, but discriminated against, and why? Um, so I think it's, it's really important to think about why, right? So the two groups that are mentioned here, the Quakers and the Mennonites or Mennonists, um, are both pacifist groups. Um, and so particularly, you know, in this time of revolution, um, or just coming out of the revolution, it's really difficult to understand how a group that is uh, doctrinally ass asserting that God is against violence can be relied upon to participate in the defense of the Commonwealth, hmm. right? So pacifist religious groups are suspect because you, you can't expect them to take up the responsibility, the duty of every other active citizen to protect the state. So those groups are out of bounds for that reason. Um, papists, you know, nobody likes the Catholics sort of historically in uh, the Anglo-American tradition. They're um, hierarchical in their government. Uh, they have this, you know, all the way, I mean, all the way up to JFK, right? The, the fear that he will be controlled by the Pope um, as president, you know, so people don't understand the hierarchy. They don't, um, they don't trust the hierarchy. Um, David, other groups? Well, I, I, the Baptists, I think you could say were, I wouldn't say persecuted, but discriminated against in the sense that uh, because they operated outside the establishment, they would pay taxes, for example, that would support an establishment, but not their own church. And the Baptists were historically uh, opposed to any kind of civil support for religion. So they took that as a, uh, you know, it's an acceptable result of adhering to the Christianity they preferred, but still it amounted to a kind of discrimination. And there may even have been social, uh, you, you might say social discrimination, if not legal discrimination in seeing certain you know, Baptists or some other Protestant groups as um, uh, maybe socially inferior in certain ways, in part because of the religion they held, they weren't quite part of the established way of life in a colony. What are the things? Yeah, and the Baptists in Virginia. Sorry, John. Please go ahead. They're here to listen to you, not me. Um, no, so I was just going to say, yeah, the Baptists in Virginia are particularly a problem because they tend to be. Um, itinerant. And so they're going in and out of other parishes that have ministers who um, are expecting their, their congregants to be in their services on Sunday mornings. And so there's kind of a loss of face um, element. So yeah, that social tension between these outsiders and the clergy who have the social role that they think is theirs, uh, justifiably or not, okay. uh, is a big deal. Yeah, I, I think that's an important point, Sarah, to emphasize the itinerant character of, and later Methodists, of course, that, that was right. something distinctive from these more established churches. I, I know uh, that certain of the Anabaptist sects, I, I know, for example, the Brethren Church, because Ashland University has a historic connection to that church, uh, the Brethren are known for being non-credal. Uh, and I think the same can be said for the Mennonites. I'm not sure about the, the, the Quakers, but I wouldn't be surprised to hear that the Quakers were also non-credal. And I'm wondering if that might not have had something to do 
with the concern, right? You, you In those faiths, you do not say here, you don't have a statement of beliefs that we must, uh, that we must all adhere to. That, that, that could well have been a, a source of, of, of discrimination. Uh, what other sorts of arguments do we find in the, uh, in the remonstrance that are, uh, that are worthy of, uh, that are worthy of, or that you think are most worthy of mention here? Well, um, I, I just, if I could for a moment point out something about the overall structure, um, and I don't know if Sarah would agree with this, but the way I read the document, there's a first point uh, which makes the broadest and deepest claim about the status of religious liberty, which we should return to because I, I think it's, it's striking. And then the second uh, point that he makes, the paragraph number two follows from that first claim. And then there's a kind of, number three is a kind of slippery slope argument. Then Madison makes an argument about equality in four. In five, he, he makes an argument about the limit of the power of the magistrate. And then from six uh, on, there follow eight different reasons why an establishment of religion or, or just even support the way the bill proposed is a bad thing. And those mix bad for civil life and bad for religious life. Uh, and then um, the final two, 14 and 15, 14 raises the question about the, the method of adopting such a proposal. And then 15 returns really to the fundamental claim made in the first uh, numbered paragraph by raising this question, question of uh, usurpation of the rights of Virginia's citizens and, and Madison saying, you know, if we accept this, uh, we're going to lose trial by jury. We're going to, you know, because how can the legislature take away a fundamental right? If we allow this right to be abridged, then uh, slowly, you know, our other rights can be abridged. So there is a kind, there is a structure to the memorial remonstrance, I, I believe. I don't know that it's evident to everybody in the first or second reading, but I think like, you know, Madison had a, I think a very uh, powerful and logical mind and there is a structure to um, the, the memorial and remonstrance. I don't know if Sarah would agree with the way I laid it out, but that's how I, I see it. So an opening of four or five, um, the kind of fundamental claims about liberty and then a series of eight statements about very practical bad consequences for government and church and then two concluding uh, statements which bring it back to the level of fundamental rights. Um, I think that's very insightful David and I think uh, hearing you lay it out that way I think that's absolutely right um, and I, I do want to talk about those fundamental rights portions. Um, and also just to briefly connect that um, to the, the structure of the bill for establishing religious freedom that ultimately comes uh, into, you know, into this discussion. Um, it's section three, I think is reminiscent of Madison's first two and concluding sections. Um, in as much as they say, you know, we understand that legislatures can do what they want, um, yet we are free to declare and do declare that the rights hereby asserted are of the natural rights of man, and that if any act shall be hereafter passed to repeal the present or narrow its operation, such act will be an infringement of natural right. You know, so the, the poignancy of this idea of inalienability um, and, and sort of we know that legislatures can and do enact laws that infringe on the rights of the people, but here we want to just make it clear that we think that's a terrible idea and that this is a law that should not pass um, and should not be revoked and, um, you know, the one that it, that actually does protect the rights. Yeah, you were, you were reading from the tail end, the very end of the statute for religious liberty. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, which which maybe we want to we want to start to bring in these uh, these two Jefferson readings. There's a, a, a couple of, or at least one thing that I uh, that, that struck me on, on number eight. Uh, this is where uh, he's talking about the, well, the, the overall point is the establishment in question is not necessary for the support of civil government, 
and goes on to say that, in fact, it, it hurts civil government. Skipping down a few lines, what influence, in fact, have ecclesiastical establishments had on civil society? In some instances, they have been seen to erect a spiritual tyranny on the ruins of the civil authority. In many instances, they have been seen upholding the thrones of political tyranny. In no instance have they been seen as the guardians of the liberties of the people. Uh, I, I mean, we could all think of uh, plenty of examples of uh, unions of throne and altar in, uh, in, in, in Europe. Do either of you have any idea what he's thinking of in saying, in some instances, they have been seen to erect a spiritual tyranny on the ruins of the civil authority? You, you mean a historical example of that? Yeah, yeah. Hmm. You That's know, a really good question, Don. I, I think that my sense is you would have to go outside European history hmm. to to see that. Okay. He may be thinking of, you know, what they used to refer to as Oriental despotisms. Hmm. Uh, um, you know, because it's in, in, in European history, I think there was always a, there were always means for the, um, for, for kings to resist the, the Pope. Although you, you could find instances where, where the Pope had the upper hand at certain points. Um, typ typically if he did, it didn't, it didn't last for very long. And there was always a, never quite that merger of um, church and state that, that occurred in other places. Mm -hmm. And certainly once the Reformation occurred, uh, it became impossible to assert a kind of um, religious authority over civil authority. Yeah, well, the Catholic Church's position has always been, hey, separation of church and state. We invented separation of, of right. church and right. state. Right? We, right. Uh, yeah. All right. What can we say about, uh, about these Jefferson pieces and how obviously they both... Uh, uh, well, actually, they don't both predate uh, the uh, memorial and remonstrance, because those of the state of Virginia certainly do, and the statute of religious freedom comes slightly afterward. What should we be paying attention to here? And, and uh, remind me of which of the two Jefferson documents you're talking about, John? We've got the uh, the uh, the notes of the state of Virginia. Right, this, this excerpt from the notes of the state of Virginia from 1781, and then the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom, 1786. Right. And the, and the excerpt, and the, um, from notes on the state of Virginia, it's the query, uh, query, query 17, religion, where he, uh, he gives something of a, of a, of a history of, uh, uh, of religion in Virginia up to uh, up to this point, talking right. about uh, establishments, uh, the the dominance of the English Church, the uh, the the intolerance toward the Presbyterians and the Quakers, etc. I don't know. Maybe you maybe you uh, maybe you don't have those. Yeah. I uh. Well, to me, I think that the. the the, stat, the Statue of Religious Liberty, the principal thing about that is the, the opening statement about the mind being free. Um, you know, to me, that's, that is very much in accord with the way Madison talks in the Remonstrance uh, when he puts the emphasis on reason, evidence, um, I think that shows a similarity with Jefferson and the history he provides in notes on the state of Virginia, I think is, uh, is again meant to show as Madison tries to highlight in a couple of these passages in the remonstrance about the bad effect of mixing church and state. So those, those documents I think uh, are very much show very much the similarity between Jefferson and Madison in the way they thought about, I believe they're the basis of what they understood to be religious experience and also the problem with mixing it with uh, po politics. Okay. 
Um, I would totally agree with that. And I would add that um, another place that they agree is on the radical nature of religious liberty. Uh, um, so that, you know, we were talking about groups that were persecuted and why they were persecuted. And it was because of the, the perceived, perceived danger to the state or the, you know, the common uh, beliefs of society or the, the good functioning of the society uh, by certain of their doctrines. And in both the bill for establishing religious freedom and in, you know, this, this little reflective essay, uh, Jefferson makes quite clear that the only thing the state can regulate is action, right? So we can say we're not going to allow certain types of religious practice, um, but we cannot say we're going to compel you to believe or disbelieve in anything. And, um, you know, this is that, that famous quote, it does me no injury for my neighbor to say there are 20 gods or no God, it neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg, right? That um, ironically for a man who clearly believes ideas have power, he's, he's sort of rhetorically denying the, the significance of the idea to make the broader point that the idea has to be free. Mm -hmm. Uh, a couple of things that that, that strike me from uh, from the uh, the notes on the state of Virginia. First of all, religious uniformity is never going to be accomplished. So, so in a way, this is a, this, this 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 whole enterprise is a waste. Uh, millions of innocent men and children, men, women, and children, since the introduction of Christianity, have been burnt, tortured, fined, and imprisoned. Yet we have not advanced one inch towards uniformity. What has been the effect of coercion? to make one half of the world fools and the other half hypocrites, to support roguery and error all over the earth. And then he goes down to talk about uh, the, the lack of establishment in Pennsylvania and New York. Um, this experiment uh, was, was new and doubtful when they made it. It has answered beyond conception. They flourish infinitely. Religion is well supported of various kinds indeed, but all good enough all sufficient to preserve peace and order. Or if a sect arises whose tenets would subvert morals, good sense has fair, has fair play and reasons and laughs it out of doors without suffering the state to be troubled with it. So even those, uh, those, those rare occasions when a goofy religion appears that really would be dangerous, <coughs> excuse me, anybody with a lick of sense sees how stupid the whole thing's and, and just dismisses it dismisses it out of court. I care to comment on, on, on either of those passages. Well, I, I would say that there's a, there's a kind of, um, if, if, if anyone listening in knows Steve not, this is, this is the kind of thing that would start not spluttering um, because he would point out that Jefferson took that view towards religious opinion, but he didn't take that view. Well, he did in a way take that view towards political opinion. That is to say, reason is, you know, reason is powerful and the truth will prevail. We just have to have debate, the marketplace of ideas, a kind of traditional liberal um, view of these things. Yet, yet Jefferson always worked behind the scenes to make sure that his own political opinions prevailed. And he would often. That's just advertising. Yeah. Well, he would often say to Madison, you know, pick up your pen and, you know, attack right. Milton. And, you know, so. Uh, you could just say he was organizing the debate, the political debate, but he, he cared much, I would say, he cared much less about uh, religious views. And he believed, I, I think, that the, the major benefit of freedom of religion is that the, there would be a proliferation of sects uh, and churches and so forth, and that they would police each other in a way. It's not, it's not unlike the factionalism argument in Federalist 10, mm -hmm. which Jefferson, the, that view of things Jefferson shared with Madison, and he was very willing to allow that view to prevail when it came to religious opinion, but he, he recognized a limit to it, I think, when it came to political opinion. But, but with regard to religious opinion, he thought that it, it actually could work without any... Uh, you know, the invisible hand of the religious marketplace would work wonderfully. Is uh, that is, is that because Jefferson simply thought religion was less important? Uh, in my opinion is that he thought, yes, that he thought that there was such a thing as a rational religion, 
-hmm. and that over time, as these debates continued, religion would become more and more rational in his view of it, and therefore those religious more commonly held, and uh, you would always probably have some fringe elements espousing strange ideas, but there would be a kind of broad agreement and on, on religious views. And that's, I think there's something like that that actually happened because the Protestant churches worked out a kind of set of views, even though they may differ on certain points of doctrine and practice. Uh, there, was a, there was a kind of broad Protestant establishment that was more than just a social grouping. It, it really uh, held certain tenets uh, generally in common, and uh, there are various ways you could express those, or people might have a different list. But I think there was a way in which that happened, and what, what changed that really was immigration, which brought more and more Catholics and also versions of Christianity from Southern Europe and so forth, which were different from the Christianity known in Northern Europe. I mean, those, so that gets to a, you know, much later period in, in American history, but, uh, you know, say antebellum America, I think there was generally a kind of consensus view of what religion condoned and what it didn't, that, that did broadly prevail. Yeah. I mean, the other thing, um, you know, with this, passage that you read, John, in particular, and it's Jefferson writing it, but it's definitely something that Madison shares. Um, when he comes home from Princeton, uh, he comes home, you know, through the middle colony, has spent some time with a friend, William Bradford, um, who's from Pennsylvania. And he writes to Bradford after he gets back to Virginia um, about a, a persecution of, I think, Baptists, actually. Um, neighbors of his and just sort of the waste of time and public energy and, you know, the dissension it causes in the community um, that Madison just thinks needn't have happened, right? That uh, if we didn't have these ridiculous establishment laws, then we wouldn't have had all of this upheaval and um, we wouldn't have people pitting themselves against the state um, and against their neighbors. And so, um, you know, I think the idea in, in this passage is also that if we allow these conversations to happen away from the rule of law, then um, not necessarily do they matter less, but they have less riding on them um, in terms of civil penalties or, or so forth. Um, and so it's, it's easier to be good neighbors and good fellow citizens if you know, you're not worried about getting thrown in jail because of what you believe, or, you know, you don't think that your neighbor should be thrown in jail because of what they believe. Okay. John, could we, um, I, I would like to look at the argument in that, the, uh, the paragraph numbered one, because I think it's, it makes it. In, in the memorial and remonstrance. Yeah, in the memorial okay. remonstrance. We have about, about 10 minutes left or so. Sure. Is that right? Okay. So, uh, I mean, he first he quotes the Virginia Declaration of Rights, uh, its reason and conviction uh, that give us our um, what we our, our understanding of what we owe to the Creator, um, and then he says, uh, therefore, it's the right of every man to exercise uh, this right of conscience as, uh, as well his religion as his conscience may dictate. Then he says, this right is in its nature unalienable. And he gives two reasons for this. He says, first, it is unalienable because the opinions of men, depending only on the evidence contemplated by their own minds, cannot follow the dictates of other men. So I, I can't give up my right um, of conscience, my right to determine my religious views, because they are the result of my own reason working on the evidence as it is presented to me. And nobody else has that experience, and therefore I can't give up that right. I can't rely on somebody else's reason. I have to rely on my own. And you, you could argue, I think you can argue against that view, but, and then his second reason, it is unalienable because what is here a right towards men is a duty towards the creator. It is the duty of every man to render the creator such homage and such only as he believes to be acceptable to him. 
And then this sentence, this duty is precedent both in order of time and in degree of obligation to the claims of civil society. So Madison is saying that your every individual's understanding of his duty to God is a stronger claim, both uh, uh, or, or a precedent claim, both in order of time and in degree of obligation to any civil uh, claim. So one reason this, I, I think it's important to think about this, if courts cite the memorial and remonstrance, if they really believe what Madison argues here, then should they not uh, and should not all Americans want the greatest possible respect for religious liberty? In other words, there can be, he, he's really saying that, that our civil claims are subordinate to the claim that we believe the creator has on us. And that claim in our own minds is a stronger obligation than any civil claim. I think that's a, uh, I, I, don't, I don't know what the right term would be, a radical claim, a, a, a very powerful claim. And if you thought about it, it seems to me it would mean that we should do as little as possible to infringe on religious liberty, freedom of conscience. So I think it's worth pointing out, this is, this is a very, very strong claim in the memorial and remonstrance. It seems to me a very strong claim for religious liberty. Okay. So, but, so on the one hand, uh, our responsibilities to our creator are, uh, are are prior to and the hence, henceforth more important than our responsibilities to the civil authority. Nevertheless, it is our we are free to determine the nature of that obligation. Right. So that the, the right to believe is a logical extension of our right to think. Very yeah. interesting. Yeah, and that's why again that statement. Uh, you know. The human mind is free, you know, the statement in, in um, that, that uh, in Jefferson's uh, account of religious liberty is, is so important. And I think it's, it's, this is Madison's version of that claim. You might say it's a less poetic rendering of that claim, but it has the same kind of force, uh, I think, uh, as the claim that, that Jefferson made. And it, it is, again, I think, a very strong claim that it, within civil society, religious liberty uh, must receive the maximum possible respect from the power of the state. We have a question about uh, separation of church and state. It, it is, do Madison and Jefferson have a problem with church and state, or is it rather with the conflation of state and church? Um, so I'm not hundred percent sure I'm clear on, on the difference between those two things, but I'll take a stab at what I think the difference might be. Um, and I would say that what David's been talking about in the, in the last few minutes about the precedence of our religious obligations to, um, you know, what Madison refers to as the creator, um, make it impossible for the state to control the church um, because the state can't supersede our obligation to God, right? Um, and I think that the, the remainder of point one um, and you can draw out from point two and three also that he, Madison in the memorial is kind of leaving open the idea that it would actually be well within, um, you know, the theory of the revolution and our rights of resistance um, for religious dissenters who find that the state is oppressing them um, to take up arms, right? That they, they would have every reason to act to defend their religious rights just the same way that other, uh, um, that the, the Americans in the time of the revolution acted to defend other rights. Right. So that there there can't be an oppression 
there cannot be a state that controls the church or you're opening up this, this huge political problem. I, I, I'm not sure if that's... Well, let me, I, I would add that Jefferson, they, they wanted a separation of church and state. But the other thing, the other way to think about this is religion and politics. And those are not um, separable. Uh, and, and nobody, as far as I know, has ever argued, I, I, not nobody, but typically the founders don't argue that church, that religion and politics should be separate. What they argue is that the institutions, state and church, should be separate. So, you know, Jefferson himself, who was considered by certain Federalists a kind of, you know, arch fiend uh, of atheism, uh, often used the Bible um, or would use images from the Bible and so forth because he knew the people he was talking to understood that language and were very familiar with it. And I don't say he was doing that in a manipulative way, but he was doing it in a way to try to communicate with people. And there's, there are lots of examples. I mean, Jefferson himself proposed Moses leading the people to the promised land at one point for the great seal of the United States. And again, I don't think he was doing that cynically. I think he realized how he understood, uh, you know, the, the opinions of Americans and he was trying to communicate and, and so forth. And there are, a lot, there are other examples I think you, could, you can draw on. Uh, you know, the, the use of uh, chaplains in, in the House of Representatives and, you know, all those things that people cite. But church and state, I, I don't think there's any question but that the founders w wanted those separate. And that conviction deepened and grew, I, as I say, as people experimented with and came to understand what the uh, various not just the First Amendment in the Constitution, but in the state constitutions, the equivalent language in the state constitutions, when people came to understand what that meant and thought about it, I think they saw more and more the advantages that Madison lays out in the memorial and remonstrance, the advantages in separating church and state. But it, it didn't mean and doesn't have to mean a separation of politics and religion. Sorry, sorry about that. I was had my uh, microphone muted. Um, I ah. wanted to see if there were any last comments by either uh, either panelist on this subject. No, I think that it's a really uh, it's a deep document. I think it bears reading and rereading, um, especially with the idea of the structure that David suggested to think about beginning and ending with the philosophical arguments um, and then just the, the practical in the middle um, is, I think, a very helpful way of looking at it because um, although the practical elements uh, of the argument may not seem as relevant in 2018 uh, as they did in the 1780s, the philosophical framework, I think, would hold up to other types of practical examples. That, that is all the time we have. I want to thank both of our panelists as well as our participants for their questions. Uh, just a reminder that you will be receiving an email with a link for a certificate of participation, should you like one. Uh, if you have enjoyed today's seminar, please consider taking an online graduate course through the Ashbrook Center. These are offered as part of our Master of Arts in American History and Government program, a program that is uh, near and dear to all of our hearts. Uh, you can find more information about Ashbrook's online course offerings at teachingamericanhistory.org. You can help us spread the word about these programs by sharing the archive link, which you'll be receiving by email next week. Share that with your colleagues as well as on social media. We would appreciate it. Our next Documents in Detail webinar will be Wednesday, September 19th. At that time, our subject will be uh, excerpts from James Madison's Notes of Debates in the Federal Convention of 1787. At that time, I'll be joined by Dr. Jeremy Bailey of the University of Houston 
and Dr. Gordon Lloyd of Pepperdine University. The recommended readings for that webinar have already been posted, and we hope to see you back back there on uh, back here rather on September 19th. Thank you all, and have a pleasant evening. Thank you for listening to another TAH.org podcast. You can find archives of all our previous programs as well as information about future programs at TAH.org webinars or on iTunes by searching for teachingamericanhistory.org.